Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I'm joined today by Ken Quattro, the author of Invisible Men, the trailblazing black artist of comic books. It's a really interesting uh, historical book, historical work about the golden age of comics and these uh, black creators, black artists who were really heretofore uh, very, very rarely discussed, if discussed at all. Right. This work was was often um, dramatically, dramatically overlooked. And Ken, you did this amazing, amazing historical work here to sort of not only talk about the work and the comics, you know, impact that these individuals had, but just, you know, their lives and kind of what, who they were and, and what got them to this point and, and sort of their contributions um, in the industry, but then also elsewhere, I, I think has made it a, makes it a really fascinating read. So I enjoyed digging into this. I wanted to talk to you about the project. Um, let me start here. How, how did you get started on this work and kind of how did it come about? Uh, Cause I know I, I've seen in other interviews, you said, you know, it's a 15 year process of, right. of research right. um but what was kind of the what was the thing that got you started down that path well um i've been uh, writing about and researching uh comic book history for about 50 years i mean i started back in the early 70s doing this and uh but my focus is mainly on the creators themselves the artists the writers and sometimes the publishers who put the comics together and i was about 20 years back uh, I wanted to write something about Matt Baker, who was one of my favorite Golden Age artists and that. And um, a lot of people, uh, you know, Golden Age collectors will recognize his work. He's known for what's called good girl artwork, mm-hmm. which is a lot of these jungle queens and phantom lady stuff and things like that. But he's just a tremendous artist. Well, anyway, nobody knew anything about Matt Baker at the time, other than the fact that he was black and he had died young. But there was no biographical information about him anywhere. Long story short, I did uh, a lot of asking around a lot of other uh, researchers and historians. And finally, somebody directed me toward a, a, a retired black cartoonist named Samuel Joyner, who lived in Philadelphia. And they said that uh, he knew a lot of these older black artists, and he'd possibly be a person I you know, should talk to. Anyway, I wrote to Mr. Joyner and got back a four-page letter from him that uh, not only mentioned that he'd met Matt Baker, but he'd met some other cartoonists in his youth. And he sent me a whole packet of clippings and newspaper articles, everything about some of these different artists. Mm-hmm. Well, it just opened up a whole new world to me, Dave. And it, uh, it was something I, you know, at that time, I'd never even considered that, the, you know, there had been a whole uh, array of black artists, you know, because uh, at the time, a lot of people thought that Baker had been the only black uh, artists to work during the golden age of comics during the 1940s. Yeah. Which if you think about it, doesn't really make sense because, you know, even statistically there should have been more than one because there was thousands of persons, you know, working in the comic book industry. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, starting with what Mr. Joyner gave me to work with, I started looking into the backgrounds of some of these artists. Well, there was nothing to find, at least not in the white media. So I totally changed my focus. And what I did is I started researching black media, particularly newspapers and magazines. And that in itself was, was a project because there's no single resource in the United States for that. Unlike white media, where a lot of libraries uh, will have archives of like say the New York Times or Washington Post. Yeah. There's nothing like that for black newspapers. And so I had literally started scouring the country 
you know, writing to different people and looking on the internet and talking to people and piecing together what I could find. Uh, I would find a few newspapers in one library or, uh, you know, a, a run of a month or two in another library. And I basically built my own database of uh, newspaper articles and stuff. Yeah. And I, I came to totally look at the, uh, it, it, it the world of these black artists from a totally different perspective because within the black media, there was not only a handful of black uh, comic book artists, there was, I found 18 and there's even more that I've come across since I've written a book. Hmm. So there was quite a few who worked in comic books. Well, that got me going And long story short, it took me 15 years to do this because I not only went into I use comic books as an entry point into their lives because I realized there was much more to their lives than just working in, as comic book artists. Right. And each one of these men had a, a unique story. And I used the comic books as an entry point. And I did genealogical research for each one of them. In some cases, I went back generations, even well over 100 years. Yeah. And like I said, there was 18 artists that I focused on, and they, each one of them had a fascinating story. And that was basically the genesis of the entire book. Yeah, no, it's, that's that is amazing. I mean, it's it's so much unique individual research that you compiled here. I, I'm curious as we we'll dig into sort of some of the you know the the comics focus is obviously the hook, and as someone right. like me who who is a fan of comics and also just the history of the medium and getting to know these individuals who you know otherwise would their stories would never have been told. That that is the hook, but it's also like as you then sort of just dig into like yeah, like you said, their lives and their genealogy and and how many of these artists where it's like you know their great grandfather was a slave and like on a plantation, it's like generationally we're so close to the civil war, this thing that at times I think, you know, sometimes, especially for a white person like myself, it can feel so far away, but then so close and so impactful at the same time. And this book, I think it makes it clear, like, you know, it's, yeah, it's within living memory for a lot of these folks. Um, have you, what kind of impact have you had, like in terms of like this research in terms of, I don't know, like communicating to these families or communicating to like, um, you know, some of these, like these individuals, like if they have errors down the line, like, cause you've done all this genealogy, have you had any sort of, uh, connections like that where you've actually connected well, with people prior to writing the book? No, but since writing the book, yes. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the artists I covered in the book was Ezra Jackson, for instance, Yeah. Ezra Jackson's daughter is Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee from Houston, a very oh, wow. powerful a woman in Congress. Yeah. Well, about a month ago, I was contacted by the Library of Congress. And uh, it turns out that the head librarian of the Library of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden, bought my book and she's a fan of my book. Okay. Which huh. that in itself was very cool. Yeah. But uh, she contacted uh, Congresswoman uh, Jackson Lee. And about a month ago, I had a meeting, a Zoom meeting with uh, both of them. Uh, which lasted an hour, and Congresswoman Lee sat there and told me about her father working as a comic book artist, mm. which was just, to me, an, an amazing uh, firsthand experience, which she'd never, you know, had an opportunity to ever talk about before. And she kept thanking me, which was, you know, she said, this is something that, you know, uh, my father's story had never been told, you know, and he was always so bitter about the way his comic book uh, career ended. Because all these black artists were basically, except for a couple like Matt Baker and uh, a couple others, left the industry when the white artists returned from World War II. So yeah. by 1946, her father and most of these other black artists were unemployed. 
And he ended up working menial jobs basically the rest of his life until the 1960s when he was the, uh, there was a man named Bertram Fitzgerald founded a comic book company, a black, uh, he was a black entrepreneur, which he found, uh, found a comic book company called Golden Legacy Comics. Mm-hmm. He hired Ezra Jackson as one of his artists. And so it, it, it was a period of like 20 some years, he wasn't allowed to work in comics. At least he didn't work in comics. Yeah. Because, you know, during most of the Silver Age, there was absolutely no black artists working in comic books which is really strange when you think about the entire 1960s went without any black artists working in comics. Yeah. And like I say, it's, it's, it's a very, very strange uh, story that, you know, the entire thing, when you tell the entire story, but I was able to piece together not only the, the lives of these men, but circumstances that they worked under and the, uh, the impact the comic book industry had itself, yeah. you know, upon their lives and how they affected it. Do you think with the Silver Age of comics, do you think there might actually be more black creators who did contribute, who just haven't gotten credit? Or do you think well, it actually is circumstantially yeah, I mean, they didn't get the opportunities? Well, it's very strange because, like I say, they had the opportunities during the golden age. Mm-hmm. But there, see, there was a there was a different method of, of uh, creating comics in the 1940s than there would be later on. We're used to thinking of comic books being created by individual artists just working on a comic book, like, a, say, like Jim Steranko, you know, working on a comic book or uh, Steve Dicko working on a comic book or mm-hmm. possibly an artist working for a comic book company. That wasn't the case back in the 1930s and 40s. Most comic book artists worked through what's called a comic shop, which was basically a studio that would package material for comic book publishers. What it was is most publishers didn't want to go through the bother of uh, hiring an entire staff and employing entire staff themselves. So what they would do is say like somebody like Dell, for instance, would uh, contact one of these packagers um, and they would say, okay, we need five comic books by next month. Yeah. You know, provide the material. So these packagers would go back. They would hire as many artists as they needed to put out that material and then they would give it to the publisher. Well, the advantage for the black artist was they didn't have to interact with white publishers because you know, as I uh, read a lot of interviews and stuff with a lot of these artists, these black artists, anytime they try to go in and get an assignment personally, they were turned down by the white publishers. Mm-hmm. But the shop owners, the studio owners weren't as picky about who worked for them. So they would hire black artists, whoever they could hire, they would provide the artwork. So the white publishers were employing black artists without even knowing it. And that's part of the reason why I ended up calling the book Invisible Men, because they were literally invisible to the people who hired them. Yeah. It was very, it was a very strange circumstance. So later on in the 1960s during the Silver Age, DC and Marvel, they had their own staffs, you know, in-house staffs. So they didn't have that sort of uh you know, buffer between, you know, the black artists and the publisher. And I'm not yeah. saying that the, the publishers wouldn't have hired them necessarily because Stan Lee employed a lot of black artists back in the 1940s and 50s. But later on, after uh, Matt Baker died, there was no, in 1959, there was no black artist who worked at either Marvel or DC throughout the entire 1960s. 
yeah. which is unbelievable when you think about it. You know, the amount of work that was coming out, but no black artists at all. Yeah, no, it's it's depressing. Um, but it's this book does a great job of highlighting, I think, the circumstances and and I, I think too, just like. I don't know, like the assumption maybe that you make when you, because you haven't heard these names or I haven't heard these names throughout history, yeah. right? That like, oh, well, it's just, it was a uh, only white people were interested or something like, right. you know, totally false. And it's just, that's not the case. That's not the truth. You just haven't heard these histories before. Um, who's now, you said you found 18 individuals that you really highlight in terms right. of their contributions and sort of their lives, uh, mm-hmm. again, sort of in, in totality. Um, whose history surprised you the most or like what, uh, what history oh, did you maybe spend the most time with even? I mean, well, to me, Matt Baker's the most interesting one because he's just a tremendous artist in that. Yeah. And there is, uh, he had a, uh, you know, he was very prolific. So I have a lot of personal interest in him. But as far mm-hmm. as like interesting stories, I came across some stories that were just mind boggling, like Owen, uh, Owen Middleton. Yeah, that, one, that one stood out to me for sure. Okay, yeah. Owen Middleton, literally his parents were slaves. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was the oldest one of the artists in the book. He was born in 1887, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. But his parents were born uh, in the South in, in uh, uh, you know, before the Civil War. So he's literally that close. I just want to point something out to you, Dave, which people don't even think about. You know, we're as close to World War II now as people in, in, during World War II to were during the Civil War sure. in, in years. So, you know, when you think about that, I mean, there's a lot of people who are still alive who were alive during World War II. That's how it was during the 1940s. Right. You know, so people did have a much closer connection than we realize, yeah. you know, to that time. Anyway, getting back to Middleton. Middleton was... Uh, uh, even though he came out of uh, uh, the South, out of South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, he was raised in the Midwest. And um, he had a, a tough upbringing. You know, he was in and out of reform school and stuff like that. But he was very intelligent and a very talented man. He ended up being one of the first uh, black journalists in the United States and uh, working for a white newspaper. And that was in the early 1900s. He went to Chicago Institute of Art and worked for the Chicago Tribune as an artist. And yeah. this is all in the early, very early 1900s, which is in and of itself very unusual. Mm-hmm. But he was also in and out of prison for different times, you know, for a number of different uh, problems. A couple of times, one time it was for passing bad check, another time it was for a robbery. Uh, anyways, um, during World War I, he went to prison as a conscientious objector, which at that time wasn't allowed. And he went to federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. Okay. And um, while he was in there, he became a, uh, a communist because he, he was in a cell with the head of the IWW. And uh, he became very radicalized after that. Anyways, he was let out of prison in 1919, traveled around the world as a sailor uh, for a couple of years. And that came back, went back into journalism. Then he got in. He got in trouble one more time for a robbery, but he did it in New York State, which had just passed a law that uh, it was basically three strikes and, and you get life imprisonment. So in 1926, he went to prison for life. He was convicted uh, as a prisoner, you know, a life prisoner in Sing Sing Prison. Well, while he's sitting in a prison cell, he got in trouble again for uh, doing some drawings and giving them to a guard to give the people outside. Uh, the prison. Because of that, he was put in solitary confinement. 
So in the late 1920s, Owen Middleton sitting in Sing Sing prison for life imprisonment and solitary confinement. Well, there's a man named, uh, um, gosh, I can't think of his name right now. Anyways, it, it was a book that came out of a, a by a philosopher. Is it and, Durant? Uh, Something like that? Durant. Thank you. Durant. Yes. Will Durant. Thank you. Brain laughs there. Uh, <laughs> Will Durant was a famous philosopher and writer of the time. And he, he published a book called uh, The Meaning of Life. And he contacted all these famous people, all these great thinkers around the world, like Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, I believe Edison was one of them. Uh, Einstein. People like that to give their views on the meaning of life. And each one of them provided like a chapter in this book that he was going to put out in 1929. Well, as he's finishing up the book, he got a letter from Sing Sing Prison and was uh, just signed prisoner such and such. Okay, just a number, no name, just a number. Well, this prisoner was Owen Middleton, and he gave his views on the meaning of life, but told from the point of view as a man who was in prison. And Durant was so impressed, he ended the book with this letter. And the letter became world famous. And uh, Middleton himself became like a cause celebrity. So all these famous people wrote letters and everything to get him out of prison. And he did. Finally, in 1935, he was finally released from prison. He immediately went out and became uh, very socially active. He covered the Scottsboro uh, boys trial. He uh, was involved with a lot of different uh, uh, social justice uh, things all around the country and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And But during uh, World War II, just like a lot of artists who were unemployed, he got a job working in comic books. And it's, it's because it was one, one of the few areas of uh, art that would hire Blacks. And also it was one of the few areas of commercial art that was really uh burgeoning at the time mm-hmm. and even though he didn't make a lot of money at least you could pay the bills so about for three or four years he worked in comic books and he did things like spy spasher and uh bullet man and stuff like that he was an anchor for the jack bender uh shop and um that's what he did but i mean and afterwards he ended up getting into politics he was uh, uh the head of publicity for norman thomas who ran a uh, in the Progressive Party in 1948 for president. Mm-hmm. And then he ran for po- in politics himself in the uh, Progressive Party in New York uh, in the 1950s. And two weeks before the election, he died. But the local newspaper, the New York Amsterdam News, uh, ran a, a full-page ad asking people to vote for him anyway. So a couple thousand people voted for him, even though he had died. Uh, you know, so it's just an amazing story of this man. I mean, who came, you know, literally out of nowhere, yeah. you know, sitting in prison and stuff. But he was just yeah. one of many people like that. I mean, there's so each one of these guys had a unique story. Yeah, no, it's it's a remarkable life. And and so many of them do. Um, we, one of the, I think, really fun pieces of this book uh, is is the, you know, interspersing the actual comics that these individuals created, right? And, and really giving you a feel for the golden age work that they were doing, uh, much of which is very much if you've read, you know, your golden age DC stuff, which I think is where a lot of like readers today might go back and be like, what was Superman like? What was Wonder Woman like, right? Um, it's got a similar vibe and feel, right? Um, but the reprints here are like the really high quality. It gives you a good sense of of what these stories were, but also like individual artistic 
merits and, and artistic ticks of some of these creators. How did you go about sort of securing uh, these these reprints and like getting them to look so good? <laughs> what was what uh, was that process uh, like? That, to me, I give all the credit to my uh, publisher, who's Craig Yo. Mm. Uh, Craig's been around forever, and that as, as a writer, artist, publisher, editor, he's done everything you know involved in comics and that. And uh, when he came to me about four or five years ago, and he asked me, he says, what do you want to do a book about? Because he's uh, been a fan of my writing. I've done a lot of articles and stuff like that. And he's published some of them. And he says, what do you want to do a book on? He says, you know, what's one thing? And I told him about this project I've been working on. I write on all different subjects, you know, related to comics. But this one particular thing uh, with the black artist, I thought was, was a very unique subject. Well, Craig says, well, go ahead, go ahead and do it. And um, as I got going on it and I kept sending him everything, I mean, most of the images in there come from my own personal collection of comics and stuff like that. And I was doing all these uh, scans. And um, Craig was really enthusiastic. So he even went to, see, he's an imprint of IDW. Mm -hmm. And he went to IDW and he says, you know, we, we want to do a high quality book here. So this is going to be a special book. And so they basically just gave me carte blanche to do pretty much anything I wanted mm. with this book, which is really unusual in publishing. You know, and I get, I get both, you know, Craig and IDW uh, credit because they expanded the book about 25 pages beyond what I was uh, allowed in the beginning, you know, just to put in more uh, material. Mm. And um, like I said, you know, I have a, a a comic book story for each one of the artists. In some cases, say like Ezra Jackson, he only did one story of his own. Owen Middleton only did one story of his own. You know, so it took a lot of hunting down with a lot of comics over the years, you know, to find each one of these, uh, you know, uh, stories, you know, to put in there. But, you know, I give them total credit. You know, Craig and his wife, uh, Kletzia, did, uh, you know, the design work on the book. And I think it's beautiful. And I, you know, it's, I give them 100% uh, credit for all that because they did a great job yeah no it's it's an awesome looking book which is which is definitely like a, a huge part of the draw here now in and some of them you mentioned that like they an artist might have only contributed so many stories but also like they didn't have credits the way we have credits now exactly. so occasionally you might see them just like signing a page or something is that literally a process of you like just reading just boatloads of golden age books and looking for signatures right. <laughs> it's well, gotta like be I said, right you know i i've been collecting comic states since the early 60s okay i've yeah. been collecting golden age comics almost that entire time since the middle 60s okay so i have i hate to say it almost a 60 year uh you know, you know, uh, history of myself of, of looking at, you know, old comics. And a stuff. lot of comics, so do, yeah. You, right. You know, you do learn to, you know, recognize styles and stuff like that. Sure. And, um, you know, a lot of times you may find one story that was signed and then you go from there. You said, okay, this is a definite. And then you just try to find, uh, you know, various tells and tropes that uh, an artist will use, you know, different mm. uh cases you know but some of these guys it's, it's really difficult because they did so little in comic books yeah you know to, they probably did more but it's hard you know defining exactly what they did because again a lot of times an artist won't work solely on a story it may be a penciler involved and they may have just been the anchor or vice versa mm-hmm. so it's you're sometimes you're, you're working with two different artists on the same story and it's you know you're trying to differentiate you know who did what yeah. 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 
No, that does sound challenging. I, I really appreciate you. Like within the, within the text, you do a good job. I think of explaining, um, you know, that you're, you're not looking to make leaps, you know, everything is sourced pretty significantly. Um, or in cases where you're like, I don't, okay, maybe I don't have as much sourcing as I would like here, but like, here's why, you know, we exactly. believe this could be the case. I, I think it's quite well thought out, um, and explained well in that regard. Um, I'm curious too, like what, so this is this is you conducting a lot of individual really unique research, and I think that's part of what makes this book special and what is connecting with so many people. If you know doing it again, like what would have helped you the most to compile this book? You know, had you done it with like I don't know, like is there a role publishers or fans or creators today could be like? Are there things they could be doing so that this work wasn't so difficult for future generations? You know well, I mean? uh, you know, it, it's unfortunately it, it's part of just our society, Dave, and that you know the white-dominated uh, society we live in was even more so back in the 1930s and 40s when all this was, you know, being done. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, libraries never kept this stuff. They never. There, there's no library that kept uh, an archive of black newspapers, which is almost hard to believe because some of these newspapers have been in existence for over a hundred years. Yeah. And uh, matter of fact, it's one thing I even discussed with Dr. Hayden at the library of Congress when, uh, when we were uh, off camera was, was, you know, and, and she agreed that it's a shame, you know, that we don't have this history documented. Right. You know, th- th- there, we have a, a, a blind spot in this country when it, when it comes to black history, you know, in, Black history is just a part of American history, you know, and but we have this blind spot that sets it apart. And because of that, it makes it very difficult for anybody to approach it, even, you know, the most dedicated researchers. And I've talked to quite a few, you know, black researchers, you know, and they have exactly the same problems. Yeah. You know, in if anybody else wants to, you know, go into this subject, I, I hope they do. As a matter of fact, I even say that in the book towards the end of the book. I hope this is a starting point. I don't consider this, uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate word on, you know, black comic book artists, because to me, there's probably so much more to learn. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, you see, I'm um, a big fan of history in and of itself. And I always look at comic books as a part of history, not a separate thing. Like one of the things that, comic book fans have a tendency to do is look at comic books myopically and yeah. like as something totally apart from the, you know, the real world. Right. You know, and that's a mistake because comic books are very much a part of the mainstream of, you know, they have been since, you know, th- their beginning, they were such, they were so hugely popular in the 1940s that people nowadays don't even realize they were selling hundreds of millions of copies of comics yeah. In a country that only had a little more than 100 million people. You know, that's mind-boggling when you consider that there's comic books today selling 10,000 copies. Right, right. You know, per issue. So it's, uh, my main thing is I just hope that comic fans in general, you know, start taking a, uh, a wider view of, of the medium. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, of the comic book medium, not just comic books, but of the comic book medium of the artists, and writers and creators. Because to me, that's what's going to cement comic books going forward. You know, fans 
and collectors only can carry stuff so far because people lose interest over generations. I've mm-hmm. seen it happen during my lifetime. I mean, when I first started collecting in the 1960s, only, buddy, only collectors collected uh, Golden Age stuff. It's not that way anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, what I collected when I was a kid is now uh, collectible. So I see, you know, fans can only carry that stuff so far. So taking comic books more seriously, you know, taking comic books to a higher level and realizing what an integral part of American culture they are mm-hmm. is important. And, you know, that's why I, I really uh, appreciated that interview you know, that talk I had with, you know, Dr. Hayden. Yeah. And I've had with different people. I've, uh, one matter of fact, the guy who wrote the uh, intro to my book, uh, Stanford Carpenter, is a cultural uh, anthropologist. And he loves the book for the, that very reason, because it puts comic books in its proper place and not just as, you know, this, oh, this is cool, Superman, you know, beat the crap out of somebody in, you know, in this issue or Batman, you know, beats up Bane or something like that, which, you know, comic book fans like. I'm not denigrating that at all, but it, it's just that there's much, much more to it. And to me, the people involved in comics are are amazing because mm-hmm. some of the greatest uh, uh, artists and writers to come out of the 20th century in America worked in comics at some time or another. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fascinating too to read these these histories where um, some of the individuals up front too are like I, I forget exactly who, but you know one of them is like a very talented you know fine artist, right? And they're they're known for their paintings and their landscapes and these things. And then it's like comics are actually for some of them like literally like dumbing it down. They're like I actually like exactly. I'm actually doing a different style that is not as right uh, the, capable as I as I am, right? Right, but and that's the perfect example. Of that was Elmer Stoner. Mm-hmm. which is the one you're probably referring to. Elmer Stoner was uh, one of the first artists, black artists to work in comic books. He started in 1939. Well, he came out of the Harlem Renaissance. He was yeah. classically trained. He worked, you know, he trained in Europe. He was an illustrator and everything else. You know, a very respected painter long before comic books even came on the scene. Yeah. But he gets to comic books and you know he was very prolific. His work is very stiff and awkward looking and stuff like that. Yeah. But I attribute that partially to two things. One, the speed that they had to crank out this comic book work, because he was doing a ton of comic book work. He did every single cover for every single Fox uh, comic book between 1944 and 1946, as well as illustrating a lot of stories like for the Blue Beetle and stuff like that. Yeah. So he was doing a ton of comic book work. And anytime you hurry through anything, it's not going to be the highest quality. And the other problem is, which is, I'm an artist myself. A lot of people who are trained painters don't take drawing that seriously. They look at it drawing as an underlay to the actual painting, which they consider the finished work. Mm-hmm. So most of their drawing is done almost like in stick figure, stick figure form. And I believe that was part of Stoner's problem is that he wasn't used to making fully developed drawings. And so he has these very awkward, stiff looking characters, Mm. but he's a very important uh, comic book artist. Like I said, he's, he did thousands of pages that almost nobody knows. him. If if you look in in a lot of these credits and stuff like that, you find very few our Stoner credits, EC Stoner credits, yet the man did thousands of comic pages. Right. Right. No, it's pretty incredible. Uh, so you, you talked a little bit about, you know, the 
at the start of this, how the silver ages, it, it, all of a sudden there's this sort of regression. And then, you know, for you, this is a, this is a years in the work project to get this, to get all the research out and get this book out. And I highly recommend people check it out. But I guess my question is what, um, what do you think, like, what do you think about in terms of a follow-up or, or do you think in terms of a follow-up, like, is this a project for you that continues to fill in the blanks of, like you said, there's, there, these are 18 that you identified. There's probably more, right? Is that well, kind of where your head goes or is there something else you're looking well, to do? Yeah. See, I, again, Dave, I, I have a lot of ongoing projects all the time. I publish this country. I do a lot of articles uh, for stuff. So I, have, I work on a lot of different areas. One thing, because the problem with research is, is, it, the, the information you get doesn't always just come at you constantly. You have mm-hmm. to search for it. So it comes in spurts. But yes, as far as like uh, the Black artist concerned, my publisher already wants me to do a second volume to it, which is fine with me because if I'd done this book the way I wanted originally, it would have been about 500 pages Okay. because yeah. there are more artists afterwards. I mean, there's quite a few that worked in the 1950s, but I stopped the book at 1950 just out of space considerations. Yeah. You know, and uh, it was kind of frustrating in a sense. Like I said, it's it's like telling a story then somebody cuts you off, you know, halfway through. Yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, hopefully, you know, the second volume will be published because there is definitely enough just to get through the 1950s of different Black artists. There's guys like Warren Broderick and Tom Feelings and... Um, E. Harper Johnson and people like that who all worked during the 1950s who I didn't mention in this book. Sure. You know, and they did quite a bit of work. Well, and culturally too, now we're moving into, right, the the house of, you know, un-American activities and, and just like right. the and it's, shift, it's the political funny. shift, what's that going to mean for these? Well, these and not only right? that, there, there's a difference too in the uh, generational uh, outlook of these artists because they're the first artists to come in, like Middleton and Stoner and Adolph Barreau, were all born in the 1800s and raised in the early 1900s. Yeah. But the artists who came along later, like Hollingsworth, you know, Alvin Hollingsworth and people like that were much, much younger. They were born at the end of the 1920s and 1930s. So they grew up with comics. Literally, right. while they were in high school, comic books were being published. So they grew up looking at comic books. The first guys coming in had nothing to... They had, didn't have that reference point. So you see a change in stylistically, uh, a change and stuff like that. Again, yeah. as an artist, I've noticed a lot of, you know, I, matter of fact, I just gave a talk last week just about the art of each one of these guys. I went mm. through, uh, you know, the progressions they made, stuff like that. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting even to look stylistically to how they changed over time. But the, the later artists definitely had comic book influences. Like you can you can look at uh, uh, Alvin Hollingsworth, for instance, or uh, Matt Baker even, and see oh, there's Will Eisner influences there. Mm. Whereas the ones who like Stoner, there's no Will Eisner influences because he was even he, they were contemporaries back in the 1930s. You know, yeah, there, was, there wasn't that reference point. So it's very interesting even from that point to see it. That's fascinating because that's the thing we just take for granted now, obviously, is that an artist, well, of course they have reference points, they've seen comics or they've seen sequential art in some form or another, and and they're going to pick up some of that, but to come in with none of that (laughs) and to literally be defining it. Yeah. The the artists in the 1930s, which again, you know, we don't uh, think about that. It was a totally new format. Yeah. I mean, some of these guys had worked on comic strips, but even that it's a very straight 
tiered format that, you know, they would publish in newspapers. And if you look at some of the work or a lot of the work of, of the early comic books, that's all it was. It was a very, you know, nine panel page or 12 panel page that they would do yeah. until you got the guys like Will Eisner or Jack Kirby, who all of a sudden are saying like, well, wait a minute, I got this whole page to work with. I'm going to, you know, do this whole design, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, they, they treat the, the page you know, they're not just looking at a tier, they're looking at an entire page and designing the story around that. And that's a, a very uh, important artistic leap that yeah. was made, you know, with comic books, which the early artists didn't have. You know, it took these guys, these geniuses like Eisner and Kirby and Krigstein and Toth and, you know, all these other guys that come along and totally just changed the idea of comic book design. That's interesting. Do you think in your, that kind of ties in, like in your research, is there of these, you know, black artists that you're identifying, are there some of them that are inventive in ways that maybe the medium like didn't get, you know, like that credit would go to, like you just said, all those names that, that comics history is familiar with. Like what are, what are some of the inventions that you saw as far as them using the Matt Baker, again, you know, get back to Matt Baker. Matt Baker, it was probably one of the five most influential comic book artists of all time, even though people don't realize it. Yeah. Prior to Matt Baker, you know, comic books, there was always like a, a sexual element that, that they had, you know, an underlying sexual element because they knew that most of the people reading comics were young boys. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, what are they like sex and violence, you know? So, but it was kind of understated in a little bit. All of a sudden, you get Matt Baker comes in in 1944, and he's his his point of reference, you know, wasn't uh, you know l- looking at just illustrating a story. He was interested in doing like cheesecake type of illustration, like almost like girly artwork. Yeah, and he totally changed the comic book industry. I mean, after he started, he started doing, he worked for the Jerry Iger shop. Iger realized this almost immediately. And he started um, uh, Baker doing covers. Well, he came out with every single cover. Front and center would be, you know, this girl with, you know, her skirt hiked way up, almost no clothes on or a, a bikini type thing, like the Phantom Lady or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And it totally, these comics sold like crazy. So everybody was copying him. Mm-hmm. Well, that carries over even to today. I mean, if you look at the comics that came out in the 1990s, even, you know, that whole period of time there, which, you know, semi-pornographic almost, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that they were putting out, that is all owed to Matt Baker. He yeah. sexualized comic book artwork. For, be- for better know? and for worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> Defend, you know, right? Yeah. I mean, like I explained last week in, in this one talk, I said that was as close to pornography as a 12 year old boy was going to get in 1945 was buying one of these comic books. I mean, if you look at some of the covers he did, or even especially the interior artwork, there was no doubt about what he was trying to uh, uh, sell there. He didn't care so much about telling the story at the time. Yeah. You know, if you look at some, you know, if if you look at some of the pages, but then you got a guy like say uh, Alvin Hollingsworth, Alvin Hollingsworth started out. um, He went to junior high and high school with Joe Kubert. Okay. Mm. And so there, there's a lot of uh, overlap between him and early Joe Kubert's artwork. Mm. Matter of fact, they even worked on each other's, they sometimes collaborated on stuff in the early years. Yeah. But later on, he totally comes, he starts changing 
his style, he develops a totally unique, almost a, a broke style like uh, Francesco Goya, if you go back to uh, elongated bodies and stuff like that. And he became like a horror artist, hmm. but he kept progressing and he went to college while he was still a comic book artist in the early 50s. And you could see him uh, towards the end of his comic book career around 1953, 54, uh, integrating different like abstract artwork into his comic books. Again, I didn't have room to show up this, you know, in my book, but it's amazing the stuff. His last couple of years, mm. brilliantly inventive artwork. And he went on to become a, a very highly respected painter. And then, as a matter of fact, a very important painter, not just a black painter, but just an American painter of the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. You know, so like I said, they definitely had their, you know, innovative uh, things. The Jay Jackson was another. He didn't do that much comic book work. But the work he did in uh, for black media, he did a lot of work for black newspapers. Mm -hmm. Extremely inventive stuff. Way mm -hmm. ahead of his time. You know, yeah. he, he, you know he created a, a, a character named uh, Speed Jackson, a comic strip. And one of Speed Jackson's stories took place in a hidden African nation in Africa, a highly advanced African nation. It was a storyline that ran nine months. He created Wakanda 20 years before Jack Kirby and uh, Stan Lee. Yeah. You know, it's just amazing some of this stuff. Right, right. No, that's fascinating. I, I love it. All right. So people should definitely check out Invisible Men. Um, I'll include links here in the show notes. It is well worth a read. Uh, like we said, too, like it's there's the comic side of it, which if you're a comics fan, is very interesting. But honestly, it's that's there's so much more to it just in terms of the history and, and getting to know these individuals and kind of their lives. And again, if you're someone like me who grew up with those 90s comics you're referencing, like it's it's also fascinating just to consider. Yeah, like, yeah, they were born in the late 1800s. And what how different was that for yeah. them entering an era? Uh, it's 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 you know, history that I find very compelling. So Ken, thanks so much. Uh, where, uh, where do you want people to, to look for you or, or what do you want people to find in terms of, you know, upcoming work or anything? Oh gosh, I'm all over the place, but, um, probably either go to my Facebook page, which is just, you know, under Ken Quattro or probably my blog. Um, I put a lot of my longer writing, uh, stuff on my blog. Sometimes it's uh, just a preliminary and then, and it's called comics detective dot com okay it. it's pretty simple it's all one word let's like yep. detective comics when you flip it around it's comics detective dot com perfect. perfect we'll include that link in the show notes here as well ken i really appreciate your time today uh this was a great conversation and it's a great book and i think uh comics history and and fandom frankly are going to be a lot better for having spending some time with it because it's uh it's very informational well i appreciate you having me on dave